the losses I suffered were very, very deep, very personal. I nearly lost my life. I think I was in a coma for a day or so. And it was extremely hopeless. It was a ho- it seemed a hopeless situation. But then I was so thankful I had my family around uh, to support me. To And I remember my sister saying to me one day, she just said, you've got to fight. Um, we would, it, it was just a philosophical thing we were talking about. And she was like, you've got to really, really fight. She said, you've got to fight. Elizabeth, fight. Hello, hello, I'm Tunde and welcome to How I Crushed It, the podcast that shines a light on talent in the community. If you're a new listener or even if you are a regular, please remember to share the podcast with friends and family so we can grow and continue to get great guests on the show. My guest today is Elizabeth Salaru. Elizabeth is many things, but she is probably most well-known for her multi-award-winning luxury cake business, Elizabeth's Cake Emporium. Not only has she made cakes for royal palaces and some of the most prestigious hotels in the world like the Dorchester and the Savoy, they've also appeared on Channel 4, the BBC, and even in the remake of Sony Columbia's film My Best Friend's Wedding. As we touch on during the show, she is also an author, an international keynote speaker and responsible for launching the Diversity in Luxury Awards in January 2024. And we start off talking about that. Welcome to the show, Elizabeth Solaru. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you. How are you? I'm very good, very good, and very glad that we could get you on the show because I know you're very busy and I know you've done so much in your life as well. So we may actually struggle to get it all in the hour. But before we kick off, I I hear that you've been heavily involved and and fronting up the the new Diversity and Luxury Awards. I think that was last week or a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) How did that all go? Uh, that went extremely well, actually. Um, that was, it was a bit of a surprise how well it went. I just did what I do normally. I didn't expect such an amazing reaction. So I'm just blown away. It went extremely, extremely well. And um, it just goes to show the power of community and the power of doing what I call great things from a very small place. Yeah, I've seen some of the pictures. You, you shared some of them on, on LinkedIn. So we will definitely touch on that a bit more towards the end of the interview. But yeah, it looked fabulous. Absolutely fabulous. And yeah, congrats on that. So to go right back to the start, as we always do with the guests that come on, really keen to to find out how it all started off. So where did you grow up and how, how were the first few years of your childhood? Right. That's a, that's a great question. Um, I'll just give you a little potted history. My parents met and got married in the UK, in London. They were both Nigerian students at the time. And then myself, my brother and my sister, we were born here. And we got taken back when I was about 10. So 
imagine going back to Nigeria, there was a bit of a culture shock. All I remember from that time was my tongue really burning because obviously the food was a lot spicier. And then I went to secondary school and university in Nigeria. And then I came back to the UK when I was uh, 22. And uh, by, by that age, I'd already got my degree in microbiology. And then I got my master's in medical microbiology and parasitology. So I was very fortunate to get a trainee position at the St. Mary's Hospital in Paddington. And that started my first career as a microbiologist. Wow, you've just you've just flashed through about twenty or so years there. That's that's fantastic. So yeah, I didn't I didn't actually know that you went back to Nigeria. I, I did know that you kind of grew up in London, but okay. So how how did those formative years in Nigeria? How, how do you think they've impacted on you as an adult? Wow, uh, quite a lot actually. And I think what I love most about Nigeria was obviously the food, the culture, and in those days the sense of community. Uh, people weren't particularly rich, but people really, really had very strong morals, very strong work ethic, and they really helped one another. I do remember that sense of community. I remember you knowing who your neighbours are, your neighbours knowing who you are, and just helping one another. So I absolutely loved that. And I loved, loved, loved growing up in Nigeria as well. I love the food, the food, amazing. After I got used to the burning sensation on my tongue, um, I discovered my favorites, so, which are still my favorites till this day. And it was just lovely. I, I, and I, I remember Nigeria being very clean as well. And I know that might be shocking to somebody who was so clean. I remember major events like the opening of the National Theatre, I remember the opening of Festac 77. So there were just like major, major, major stuff. Um, lots of music, amazing musicians, amazing TV shows like Village Headmaster, like Wins Against My Soul, amazing commercials. So yeah, visually for me as a child, it was amazing. Um, and growing up in Nigeria was amazing. And you've been quoted as saying in a, I think it was an article maybe, that your parents were very hardworking when you were a kid, but also relentless. I mean, what do you mean by relentless? How, how were they relentless with, with their children? Well, it, uh, my dad was a massive um, disciplinarian, but he himself was such a hard worker. And I'll give you an example. I remember we used to go to, he was a, he was, um, a civil engineer, a builder, and he used to take us to sites. So building sites were sort of like second nature. And he would show us, you know, this is where the kitchen's going to be. This is where the living room's going to be. And in Nigeria in those days, laying the foundation and doing the decking of a building were like major, major events. And in fact, sometimes you even brought your family and your friends to witness such an occasion. So I remember him bringing us to this particular site it was raining. We were cold. We were miserable. But what was happening at that time was um, a friend of his was laying the foundation to his first house and things were going wrong. So, and I remember the soil was clay and 
clay soil is terrible when it comes to water and it was raining. So I remember my dad sending to the ministry because he used to work for the Ministry of Works and Housing. So he sent to the ministry for a water pump and that broke. And then he sent for another water pump and that broke as well. And then his friends started crying. His friend was like, oh, I've been told I'll never build a house. I'll never amount to anything. And my dad said something like, you may have been told that, but I wasn't told that. And we are getting this foundation laid. And he made sure we all stayed on site. Um, He got a third water pump, which is a massive, massive one, got all the water out, and we were able to lay the foundation. So that is the meaning of relentless or resilient um, as as an example that I saw when I was um, a child. I see. So like always finding a solution to a problem, not not just stopping at the first hurdle. That's great. And um, by all accounts, you, you were a bit of a brain box at school. So I've read. How was your experience going to the Nigerian school? Because you, obviously you left the UK at the age of 10. I loved school. Um, the teachers loved me. Yes, there was a bit of teasing because in those days you're called things like butter. Obviously butter because you're soft. Uh, butter or Ajay butter. Um, yeah, but it was, I loved school actually. Um, well, at least parts of it. And I was a good, um, obviously because they thought I was intelligent. I was a great student. I would sit in front. I was very helpful to the teachers. I would clean all the chalk dusters. I was, um, at one point I got made class monitor, but I was very easygoing. I didn't really enforce authority or anything like that. But I loved reading. I I absolutely adored reading. So for me, school was great. Um, I had no problems whatsoever, except when it came to mathematics, which I, I couldn't get my head around. But once I get my head around a subject, it might take me a while. I'm fine. I'll be flying. So yeah, I loved school. And I heard that you wanted to become a professor, even in school, you had this idea that you wanted to become a a professor. Where where did that inspiration come from? Well, it just came from me loving books and loving to read. Uh, My favourite place ever is still the library. I love libraries. The older, the dustier they are, the better. Um, It's one of my, it's on my bucket list to do a tour of all the best libraries in the world. So I do love my books. Um, I buy books, I, anything to do with books. So if you're a book lover in Nigeria, obviously the, they will push you into becoming a professor. Um, and when I went to university as well, all my lecturers, all my teachers thought I would be, end up becoming a lecturer. And I was taking steps towards that path before I decided to come to the UK. Okay, and come back to the UK, you did. How did you find the reintroduction to the UK? I mean, you mentioned before the coldness, but um, sort of culturally, did you find it easy to get back into the way of things or was it was there a bit of an adjustment for you? Um, it was fine. I think the one thing that I had to adjust to was the workplace dynamics and politics. Um, it was less formal than a Nigerian workplace but informal in some way. So in terms of if you wanted to advance, if you wanted to get ahead, you did have to go, you do have to go to the pub. 
you do have to socialize on one hand, but on the other hand, there were other, so it was, it was navigating all those little things. But once you get the hang of it after a couple of years, you're fine. So all that was okay for me, actually. And I loved the fact that if you put your best foot forward, you will actually get to where you need to get to, if that makes sense. So yeah, I, I, I loved it. Okay. And you, you mentioned earlier that, in fact, you did two degrees, I, I see here. So you did two degrees. And I think at one point you were thinking of doing a PhD. Um, and then you ended up becoming a, a microbiologist. I mean, what does a microbiologist do? Essentially, we look for germs. Um, they could be bacteria, viruses, funguses, um, parasites. We just look for germs that make people ill. Um, so the good thing about uh, that particular job is you do rotations or stints in different sections of the lab. So one minute you could be looking for what causes TB. The next minute you could be looking for something that causes an STI. So I love that. I loved um, that these very tiny organisms that you, you can't even see sometimes with a naked eye can cause so much destruction to the human body. And they were very clever about the way they did it. Um, and each bug has a different method. So for me, I absolutely love that about microbiology. Okay. And I mean, you, you were doing this job for quite a few years. And then eventually you decided to pivot and move away from, from science, even though you, as you've just said, that you loved it initially. What was the main reason for maybe growing a bit tired of, of what you were doing? Why did you decide to move away from it? A couple of things, really. I just thought to myself, number one, how far can I go with this? How far can I advance? And it seemed to me that it wasn't, I don't know, it just seemed that it was, it just took too much energy to advance the way I wanted to advance. Then secondly, I just thought there has to be more to life than this. I just wanted to do something different. I wanted to to have my own business, do my own thing. So I just decided to leave. And that's when I went and did an MBA at Middlesex University. And it was a completely different world. So that was some of my thinking at that time. Yes. Um, I mean, you know, this podcast is all about people, how they've got to their level of success. And uh, I think in most cases, a lot of people go through ups and downs. And I hope, I hope you don't mind. And I hope if you don't want to talk about it, we don't have to uh, dip into it majorly. But you've suffered some loss in your life and also had a divorce. And I was just wondering, how did you get through that period in your life? And, and how are you now able to talk about it comfortably? How does one get through that period? Yeah, I mean, that was a really, really dark period. It was really, really awful. Um, it wasn't pleasant at all. But I don't know. I think a couple of things. Number one, I have a very, very strong faith in God. I have a really, really rooted, grounded faith in God. I knew things had to happen for a reason. So that kept me going. Um, the losses I suffered were very, very deep, very personal. I nearly lost my life. I think I was in a coma for a day or so. And it was extremely hopeless. It was a ho it, it seemed 
a hopeless situation. But then I was so thankful I had my family around uh, to support me. To And I remember my sister saying to me one day, she just said, you've got to fight. Um, we would, it was just a philosophical thing we were talking about. And she was like, you've got to really, really fight. She said, you've got to fight. Elizabeth, fight. Um, because she kind of knew that when you suffer loss after loss after loss, it's easy to descend. Um, and, but another thing is people sometimes feel very uncomfortable around someone who is grieving. So, I think grief is personal and grief doesn't have an expiry date. But what happens is time makes it easier. So I was able to, to devote myself to working for charity, working um, with other people who had suffered such a bereavement. My church were an amazing, amazing help on that front so I kind of buried myself for a number of years, just working and doing things for other people. And then gradually I kind of healed. And that was when I kind of woke up and I said, you know what, I want to do something different with my life. And that's why I went off to do my MBA. So I, I would say to anyone who might be going through something similar, take your time, but be determined to come out of it. And have a deep faith in something, whatever you believe in, just hold on to something. Uh, talk if you if that's your way of dealing with things. Try and talk to an expert, a professional, uh, because sometimes we don't want to burden our family. And find something that gives you purpose or gives you joy. Absolutely. I concur with that. You know, having the ability to speak to somebody maybe outside of your family can make all the difference. So sorry for your, for your loss. Um, I mean, I, I know you've spoken elsewhere about maternal deaths and uh, you've mentioned that amongst black women, they are five times the, the national average. What, why is that, do you think? And, and what, what can be done about it? That's a really great question. And it's a question. And I think what is sad is that my, what happened to me not once, not twice, but three times actually happened about 30 years ago. And unfortunately, the statistics are still the same. In fact, they're getting worse. So it's not a matter of talking about it. It's a matter of doing. And the only reason I'm alive today is because I was a microbiologist and I recognized the symptoms and I knew I was dying and I had to call. In those days, there was a payphone, and I was so thankful. I had a payphone beside my bed. I had to call in the middle of the night a colleague in the hospital that I worked in to wake up a consultant microbiologist in, in, in the hospital I worked in, who then um, woke everybody up in the hospital I was in to say, if she dies, her death is on you and I will come after you personally. And that was when they checked my notes, realized that there were certain tests they hadn't done. They gave me the a completely wrong antibiotics, which I'd already alerted them to, which they didn't listen to me and took my symptoms seriously. And that was how they averted very serious septicemia in me. Now, 
you would have thought after all that, you know, hassle that the following day they would have been grateful or at least they would have been ashamed. The, the, I remember the microbiologist, the consultant microbiologist came into my room and was telling me off for self-diagnosing. And this is me, an educated black woman, microbiologist in those days with multiple degrees. So you can imagine, I can't even begin to think of women like me still suffering the same thing. So it's not about talking about it because we have been talking about it. It's about maybe people listening and not just listening, but truly hearing what we have to say. Also, I'm so glad that some uh, fairly young doctors are now realizing that old medical textbooks do not accurately reflect some of the symptoms and some of the things that black women might be going through. So for example, even the oxygen um, readers react different to black skin than they do to non-black skin. Even uh, 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 blood pressure cuffs, you know, it's just little things like that. Medical textbooks are still full of imagery that don't accurately reflect us as black women. So, but I'm so thankful that there are people stepping up and saying, you know what, we will design our own imagery. We will have our own imagery in these textbooks that represent us accurately. Yeah, I mean, hopefully things will, will get better as, as more and more of our community get into the medical profession and, and rise to, to high places to, to actually make a, make a difference. But uh, again, really sorry for your, for your loss. Um, moving on to, to slightly more um, positive aspects. I mean, you started talking before that about your NBA that you did in 2000. And when you were doing it, and I know you did it part-time, did you have a career in mind that you wanted to, to transition to? Or was it just kind of just doing the MBA first and then working that out later? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it was just me saying, I just want to leave the lab. I just want to go work in the city. I don't know in what capacity, but I just want to leave. So it was like, okay, let's do the MBA. Let's find out what it's about and then um, look for opportunities. And this is something I will not recommend people do. I would say to people, have a goal, have a purpose, et cetera, et cetera. However, be flexible when it comes to maybe changing that purpose. So I'm, I'm glad it worked out for me, but that was my thinking. And the MBA was an eye opener. I was, it was so much fun. I had a group of really great classmates. Um, some were amazing, some maybe not so much. However, you work with everyone across the board to get results. And that was the, that was my goal. That was my aim to kind of come out, not waste my money because quite a number of us in the class were self-funded. So I needed to make sure that my £20,000 investment in those days paid off at the end. And I just used my research skills and my natural curiosity. I just used that to my advantage. So again, loved um, the MBA, loved the learning. It wasn't just the academic learning, but it was about getting on with people. And it was also about networking because the one thing I did right from day one was network 
So, and I realized that being a student opened doors to so many corporate places. So I'll just write to random CEOs saying, um, I'm a student at blah, blah, blah. And I've been studying you or I've been studying the way you do things in your organization. I think you're inspirational. And boom, that door will open. And I remember uh, vividly when I, it, it dawned on me that the, uh, the business school that I went to didn't really have anything in place for MBA students like myself who were trying to change careers. So I started nagging the school. I started hassling them. And they said to me, you know what? Um, how about you do it? But we're not going to give you much money. And I said, fine, I'll do it. Because I know that taking on that role will bridge the gap between my scientific CV and a corporate CV. Because if you looked at my CV, there was nothing there to say I could probably transition into a corporate job. And in fact, I remember writing to the chief executive of Camelot, um, who do the lottery. And she was like, um, oh my goodness, uh, we're looking for people like you. Why don't you send me your CV? And I did, and I didn't hear back. And that was because my CV had no reflection at all to the role. So I started learning, and that was a massive lesson for me. So I started learning um, how to tailor CVs and stuff like that. So the, the role I had at the, at the business school on a part-time basis was fantastic because it allowed me to go everywhere. I used that role to network um, and I did things differently. I brought in headhunters. I did evenings for other MBA students in terms of if you're looking for a job. I mean, I, there was just so much that I did, um, but I used that role <laughs> to, to position myself and get my dream role as a headhunter in the city. Yeah, I mean, that's so ironic. I mean, I, I know I've been a headhunter myself, but you were talking about networking and the fact that you're really good at that. And then you, you were speaking about tailoring CVs and then that's obviously <laughs> kind of led you to become a, a headhunter. How did you find being a headhunter? It's not for everybody, is it? But how, how did you find it? No, it's not for everybody. Very stressful. But I think for me, I love the psychology of the role a lot. And you learn a lot about people when you are in the position of a headhunter, because it's like you're a matchmaker, really, but a high level matchmaker. So you have to listen to the client when they tell you the candidate brief. But then you also had to listen to the market in terms of what they were saying about the organization. Then you had to listen to the candidates in terms of what they thought they, 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 they were bringing to the role. And then you had to listen to what they weren't telling you about themselves. So for me, it was a, a massive, massive lesson in human psychology. And it was incredible what you can actually take, take away from a 45-minute interview with a candidate from body language to things that they say to how they say it, to how they present. Um, it was just so much. So the learning for me was immense. 
And in many ways, I think as a headhunter, you know, you're, you're creating something from nothing in some ways because, you know, you turn up at your desk and uh, you've got no clients on day one for most people that start out as a headhunter. And then you're expected to go out there and hunt, hunt for deals, hunt for business. So it does teach you a lot, but it's also quite nerve wracking at times. And, you know, particularly during the lean periods where there's not much going on, you still have to pay the mortgage. It's, it can be quite can be quite nerve wracking. So I know you did this up until the run up to a, quite a major recession. I don't know if it was the financial crisis, uh, the crash, if that was that recession, but um, was that one of the main reasons why you decided to pivot away from, from HUD hunting and, uh, and go into your next chapter in your life? Yeah, absolutely. It was that, it was actually that crash, the 2008. I'd already seen the signs. Um, anyone who is a good observer of what was happening in the city, we were finding that the roles were getting, you know, less and less and smaller and smaller um, things were coming in. So when that happened and they let me go at my job and also uh, where I worked, we we had, um, what was it called now? Like a lead table. So the lead table will show you who's brought in the most money and who's brought in the least amount of money. I was never top, but I was somewhere comfortable in the middle. And then bit by bit by bit, the league tables, as you know, you see yourself dropping, you see people who were rainmakers dropping, which is a bit shocking. And if you dropped maybe three months in a row, you knew you were going to be going to be let go. So it was best to let yourself go <laughs> rather than be asked to go. Um, so that was when I decided milestone birthday, I'm being let go. So why not go into something that I absolutely have been dreaming about doing since I was about 10? And that's what I set up my cake company. Yes. So this is what I wanted to ask you. So this cake company, obviously, that's arguably what you're most well known for today. Was it genuinely a, a dream since the age of 10 to, to set up your own business making cakes? Yes. Um, but it was a dream that you wouldn't dare tell your parents. <laughs> you'd be dead. Yeah. <laughs> you know, education was everything. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was because um, I remember in those, when we went back to Nigeria to help me cope with the stress of moving, I, did, I started baking. A friend of mine at school gave me a cookbook, my very first baking book. And there was a recipe for Victoria Sponge. And I thought, ah, oh, you know, cakes can't be this easy. So I thought I'd try. And I remember using a tin. Um, I don't know. I don't know if it was a Born Vita tin. It had to be Born Vita. And then I used the tin. It worked. And then I started gathering together my mother's pots. Because in those days, you know, when you're making things like Ebba or Amala or something, um, you have to grip the handle really, really hard. And for some of the pots, the handle will break, right? And once the handle's broken, my mum will say, right, throw it away. I don't want to see that pot. It was useless pot. So I would collect those pots and hide them under my bed because I use them for baking. And then I quickly realized that some pots would bake the cake on the outside, but the inside would still be raw. And some pots gave me a perfect bake. So that's when I I started experimenting. And I think I baked for the next three, four years till I was about 14, 15. 
And then I just stopped because obviously I had to focus on my, on my studies, but yeah, um, that was when all that started in me. So when I had the opportunity to start my own company, I just thought, you know what, I'm just going to go for it. And that's what I did. And yeah, that's what you did. You set up your own business called Elizabeth's Cake Emporium. And you've got a fantastic story about how one particular lady kind of helped to elevate the business. So could you talk a little bit about that and, and, and actually your journey, your physical journey to delivering the cakes and coming back? Because I found that really, really amazing. Right. Um, okay. So <laughs> um, I'll, go, I'll, I'll go back a tiny bit. Um, when I was a headhunter, the last company I worked for, we had to make 100 calls a week. And these were cold calls to CEOs, um, chairs, and maybe finance directors and HR directors that we don't know. So you had to make your 20 calls a day. And I never quite achieved 100 calls a week, but I did my best. So when I decided to set up my own company, I had no money. um, And I just thought to myself, I don't know anyone in the industry, but let let me give it a go. So I got um, the yellow pages and I started calling event companies. So I'd call them, introduce myself. Some would put the phone down, not even listen. Some will listen and then give some excuse or another. So I called this particular company and there's a very young girl at the end. And she said, oh, um, do you make cupcakes by any chance? And I said, of course we make cupcakes. And um, I had a bit of a script and I'd say, yes, we do make cupcakes. And guess what? Uh, we're going to be in your area delivering in the next three days. Those three days were to give me time to maybe get some pretty boxes, etc. Um, and I'd say, yeah, we'll be in your area in the next three days. Would you mind if I drop some samples for you? And she was like, oh my goodness, that would be amazing. And then I did that, just drop the samples. And one thing I learned was drop the samples and go and not wait around or anything like that because, you know, um, I will say this, I'm a black woman and I don't want people to think it was my company because in those days you were kind of like worried about, "Mm, am I going to lose business if people say, if people know that I'm the face of my company? So those are things at the back of your head as well. So I delivered the cupcakes and before I got home, I got a phone call saying, um, by the way, Elizabeth, Lady Elizabeth wants to see you. And I'm like, who's Lady Elizabeth? And apparently I delivered those cupcakes to the house of Lady Elizabeth Anson, who is the Queen's first cousin. I did not know that at the time. So I went back and um, had a chat with her. She was extremely complimentary. And she gave me the order for 250 cupcakes on the spot. She said, do them exactly like this, make them taste exactly like this, and I'm happy. And I delivered the order very successfully. And then she did something that blew my mind. She then wrote me the most amazing letter to say that they had three cake makers for that particular event, and my cakes were the best, and I can use her name. And the letter she has written as a testimonial everywhere on my marketing material. And that was how I got my first, first massive lucky break into the world of luxury um, via Lady Elizabeth Anson. 
That's fantastic. And what, what makes the story even more powerful is that, I, and I, I don't know if this is correct or not, but you got the bus to the address and you got the bus back. Is that, is that correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It was the bus. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's just an amazing story. It was I love the bus, that story. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> um, and of course, I mean, you, you set up your business in 2007, 2008. This is before the whole Bake Off, you know, phenomenon. So I guess you got in there early, almost perfect timing in, in many ways, right? Yes. And the funny thing is that another person that gave me another massive break is called Simon Witherington. He, um, long story made short, he came to a wedding show to film a particular florist. He did the filming. I mean, I thought the florist stand looked amazing, to be honest. He did the filming, packed up, and he was in his van. But then he said, you know what? We don't have enough color because the, the stand was all white, beautiful flowers. Amazing, amazing. He said, but you know what, though? We need something with color. So there was another florist that was right next to me. So he came to her stand and he said, would you mind if I film you? Um, and we'll give you about 15 minutes to, to prepare. So she then said, oh, my God, Elizabeth, what do I do? So I helped her to rearrange her stand. I said, bring this forward, move that back, blah, 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 blah. So helped her. They came back and they filmed her. And then I was just so happy for her. We were like dancing. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. You're going to be on wedding TV. This is amazing. Blah, blah, blah. So I then went off to watch a fashion show. And then I, about, I don't know, half an hour later, I just heard somebody scream, Elizabeth, Elizabeth, they come back for you. They come back for you. So I just ran. I was like, oh my God, who's come back for me? And apparently Simon again got back to the van and he said, you know what? I really love those cakes. I absolutely love the cakes on the stall next to the, the place we just filmed. So he came back with his crew, filmed the cakes, and he said to me, would you like to say a few words for the camera? Can you tell us about cake trends? Can you tell us about this, this, that, the other? I can't even remember half the things I said. I was just literally <laughs> just saying words. And he was so happy. He went away and I got shown on wedding TV. Now, that would have been amazing, but the story didn't just end there. He then got the idea of having a baking show that featured the best wedding cake makers and he would um, scout for couples and then they will consult with us and then we will present our sketches and our cakes and then the couple will choose who they want to make their cake. So in effect, you would win. And um, he then said he wanted me to be part of the program. And I said, no, 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 no. I am not a professional. So I gave him a long list of names of professional cake makers uh, from Peggy Portion, um, so many others, um, to, to Zoe Clark. And I said, go and talk to them. They are amazing. And he said, you know what, Elizabeth, I want a mix um, of people. I want a mix of people. I'm going to make sure you're part of this program. So he put me on and I remember the filming. I, it was nerve wracking. I've never filmed before. I didn't know what to expect. And lo and behold, I won in all my categories. So three out of three couples chose me 
to make their wedding cake. And as soon as that program hit the screens, um, which was wedding TV in those days, which was on Sky, I mean, my phone, my website, I was just getting hit after. It was just, it just went crazy. But this was way before social media. This was when um, uh, Facebook was at its infancy, way before Instagram, et cetera, et cetera. Um, I think YouTube was around. So yeah, that was, um, that, that happened as well. I'm still friends with Simon. I made his birthday cake recently. And if he's listening to this, Again, Simon, thank you so much. <laughs> Lovely shout out there. Um, I mean, I think many people, you know, won't have much insight into the world of high-end luxury wedding cakes. Uh, I mean, apart from maybe their own wedding. I, I read recently that uh, Kate Middleton and Prince William, you know, they obviously had a, a wedding cake for their own wedding uh, a few years ago, and that cost around £80,000 to make, and that was made by... Uh, British baker Fiona Cairns took five weeks to make. Couldn't believe it. Five five weeks to make. So, can you give us some insight into the operation that you that you have? You know, how big is it? How many people do you have helping you? And and also, how how long does it take to to bake one of your most prestigious uh, cakes for for some of the clients that you're working with? Right. Okay. So so many questions in that question. So I'll try and answer them uh, in terms of what I remember. Right now, there are four of us in the company. Um, I have a commercial space that I use. I have a studio as well. And the order you get in, it varies a lot. So there are some clients that I never, ever get to meet. I don't even know what they look like, still don't know what they look like. And there are other clients who want to be involved. Um, Some clients come to you directly. Some come via third parties. Um, and some will build layers and layers between you and themselves. And for some of them, you sign a non-disclosure. Uh, some of them will give you a confidentiality agreement. Some of them don't want any images. Um, and so that, so there's a lot of layers to that aspect of things. And then the actual order itself, it's all about knowing what they like, knowing what they hate, um, knowing um, the colors, knowing um, their passions, their interests, hobbies. Um, sometimes they might want you to add something secretly somewhere as an inside joke. So there's a lot that happens in that realm. But once you have your consultation, you then submit, you can submit a number of designs or some of them might say, we trust you, just go with whatever you think is best. Um, and I had one um, a few years ago where we had to deliver the cake to uh, the Palais Liechtenstein in Austria, uh, Vienna. And that was an exciting journey, I, t- I can tell you, because we went by road and uh, there was an accident and we had to be diverted. And then we had to go through the whole of what seemed like the whole of Germany. And we had to get to the palace at a certain time. And there's a city ordinance that your vehicles can't be a certain weight. Um, so yeah, that was that was stressful, nerve-wracking, but it's still one of my favorite cakes because that palace is one of the most ornate I've ever seen in my life. And I've seen so many. 
And the couple never met them, American couple, and they're still my favorite couple till this date. Um, another exciting one was I had to take a cake all the way to Spain. So we had to go by road, by ferry. Um, and yeah, that was exciting. That was a bit exciting as well. So that went really well. Um, it was at the uh, Castilla de Tamal. Again, um, beautiful colors, beautiful, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Beautiful team. The wedding planner, amazing, amazing, really looked after us. Uh, there was another one that I had to deliver on a, um, the wedding was on a cliff, literally on a cliff overlooking the beach. Uh, that was in Ibiza. I've been to the Middle East. Um, I can't talk much about those. I've been to the middle of nowhere, a desert where I had to deliver a cake. So that so many journeys, so, so many. Um, so it's not just about cake making, the cake making side that can take you weeks or months because, um, sugar lasts forever. But the most nerve wracking is the logistics in terms of delivery. And I have to map out, I have to do like, um, a risk assessment and map out what can go wrong at every stage of the journey from, uh, say the tires bursting to, <laughs> um, not being given the right kitchen. Cause that's another thing when you're taking cakes abroad, um, the venue will say, yeah, 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 yeah. Don't worry. Everything's okay. Uh, we're happy to have you chefs waiting for you and you get there and no one has told the chef anything. And the chef is worrying about cooking for 300 people and not your cake. So you are just an additional problem to the chef. So you need to go in there. And so what I tend to do is uh, when I arrive, I will go in, go and literally salam or bow to the chef (laughs) because he can make or break my my experience. Uh, Salam the chef. And generally, I even take presents with me. So I would read a little bit about the chef. Um, uh, nice gifts, you know, like from Fortnum and Mason, they never fail. That's all I have to say about that. So take a little gift, um, present it, uh, um, smooth any ruffle feathers, because sometimes the chef maybe wanted to make the cake and, you know, they're like, you know, do you think I, you know, so you need to, you know, be very humble and then scout the venue and then say to the chef, you don't have to give me your kitchen. Just give me a nice room and I'll be happy there. So little things like that. Um, I must say that the very best kitchen I've ever been given um, since I've been making cakes was at the Shangri-La in Paris. And oh my God, they gave me the most beautiful kitchen. They fed me. They treated me so well. Um, so yeah, um, I, I've had some really amazing adventures. Have you had any any disasters? Like you oh, know, maybe <laughs> when you've gone you've gone to a venue and the cake's fallen on the floor or something like that. I mean, what, what's the worst? What's the worst thing that's happened? Not quite that. Yeah, um, not quite that. But it nearly did. I remember um, the there was a wedding I did in the south of France and came set up the table, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, the cake was to be cut next uh, next to the pool. And as I put the cake on, the table literally collapsed. So thankfully, 
a few people were around. So we, we held up the table until someone can go underneath and fix the legs properly. Um, so since then, I've always checked the legs myself. I've, you know, it just makes you so paranoid. So yes, I've had near disasters. I've had uh, situations where the sugar flowers have melted um, because of the high humidity. But luckily, there's always a backup plan. So yeah, there's, you know, there's always disasters, but the couple never, ever know. They never, ever know. <laughs> and that's the most important thing because I always say it's, it's not enough to deliver the cake until the cake is on the table and it's been cut. That's when my job is done. Okay. Great, great, great to hear. Great to, yeah, I guess the wedding couple on the day, they've got other things to worry about, I guess. In many, in many respects, but um, it's great that you've had that so much success with with that business. But um, in recent years, it seems that you've—I don't know if you've been pivoting away from the cake business, but you've you've had other things that you've been interested in and, and launched other businesses. So we talked about the diversity and luxury awards. Um, obviously, your speaking career is is taking off as well. I hear that you're you're coming out with a with a with a new book uh, this spring. And, you know, you've become a kind of resident sort of leading expert on the whole world of luxury. So how do you see the next few years going? And 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 is it true that you are maybe slightly pivoting away from having the cake business as, as your main focus? Well, the first thing I'm going to say is um, I've done so many podcasts, but I think this is the most researched ever because you're telling me things about myself and I'm thinking, really? How does he know that? Really? Really? So thank you so much. I really appreciate that. Um, I wouldn't say pivoted. This is the way I look at it. Uh, I look at people like Idris Elba. He's a DJ, musician, actor, fashion model, influencer. He owns restaurants. He um, does a lot for the black community. So I believe it's another string to my bow. But yes, I do um, quite a few speaking engagements. I am always looking for more speaking engagements. So if anyone wants to um, book me, um, just contact me and uh, we, we let's talk. So I do lots of speaking, which I absolutely enjoy. And more importantly, people seem to enjoy it. I also um, tend to talk about the luxury industry. And this is the reason uh, I love demystifying things. I think that's been a thread that's gone that's run through my career. I like breaking things down. I like knowing how things work and I like doing my research. So when it comes to the luxury industry, um, there are certain, uh, shall we say, barriers that I want to lower for people of color, for different cultures. Uh, and this particular awards, the Diversity in Luxury Awards, that came out because when people come out with their power lists or when people talk about luxury, certain demographics are often forgotten, as in women and people of color. Meanwhile, we are the ones actually driving the culture that drives the designers that drives luxury. So it just occurred to me that, you know what, if there's no platform for people like myself, Maybe I can build one. So that's why last week we did the first Diversity in Luxury Awards. 
And um, I was absolutely blown away by the number of brands, as in major mainstream brands, that they just came on board and they just engaged with us so positively. So we had Selfridges there. We had Marnie. One of the winners was um, Lena Nair, the CEO of Chanel. Now, if anyone had said to me that I would be reaching out to brands like that and they and for them to take a punt on an unproven concept and everyone kept saying, you've raised the bar. Um, somebody came up to me and said, oh my goodness, you really shut me up because to me, it's about excellence. I don't care who you are or what you do, whatever, but it all, it's all about excellence. And I just went about finding those pockets of excellence because it kind of started in 2020. We know what happened in 2020. But what then happened was that a lot of brands came out, oh, yeah, 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 but, you know, we're going to do things right. We're going to change. And then a couple of years later, everybody, it was back to normal. So posting a black square for me wasn't enough. This was about, okay, you know what? How about we build our own platform and we do things really, really well? And that's all I tried to do. Um, and yeah, the, 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 the reaction has been positive. And right now we are looking for partnership. We're looking for sponsorship because we want this to keep going. We want it to be bigger and better in 2025. So again, I'm very shameless about this. Another shout out. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it's so impressive. I will attach a link to the website in the in the show notes. The likes of Oswald Botang and Jun Sarpong picked up awards at this event. So I'm sure next year's event will be even bigger than it was this year. Um, I know we're running out of time. So just to, just to round off things, really, this is a question that we ask all the guests that we get on the show. You know, you've had a lot of success in your career and particularly with you, you know, doing multiple different things, which is really impressive. If you had to boil down your success, which of the following do you think is the biggest contributor towards your success? Is it luck? Is it hard work? Or is it talent? If you had to choose one out of the three, what would you, what would you say is the biggest contributor? I would say every time hard work, um, because if you don't apply, even if you haven't got that much talent, if you're not the most talented, hard work and consistency, they're the two things that can change the game because they will position you uh, to meet luck, I believe. They will position you to meet opportunity. And if you're not prepared when opportunity comes, because luck can get you in the room, but hard work and consistency will make you stay in the room. I also want to add failure, learning how to take failure and taking failure very, very well. Um, yes, everyone talks about the success, but what they don't see um, is the tears, the, the, the brokenness, you know, when things are falling apart, when you have to think on your feet, those are things that people do not see. They see the success, they see the images, but behind the scenes may be a different story. So I would say that people shouldn't compare um, a movie highlight or or the advert, you know, because what you see is somebody's movie reel, you know, you see the show reel, 
the best, the best bits. So don't compare somebody's best bits to your real life. It's, it's never like that in real life. Powerful words there to, to end the interview. Um, Elizabeth, it's been a real pleasure having you on the podcast today and we wish you all the best for the future. Thanks very much indeed. Thank you so much for having me. I've had so much fun and yeah, I'm really, really impressed with the sheer amount of research (laughs) that you've done. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Great, great, great to have Elizabeth on the show. She is so full of life and doing so many things, which I think shows that despite suffering loss, you can still get through it and things do become a little easier. Now, if you're into luxury cakes or maybe if you have a wedding coming up and you want something fancy, then do check out her business, Elizabeth's Cake Emporium. The website appears in the show notes. As usual, you know, if you like the show, if you like the interview, please subscribe or rate the show. Hit us up on the socials too at How I Crushed It or send us an email to howicrushedit at gmail.com and catch you on the next show.